This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here across the nation. There's some breaking news happening right now at this minute. Uh, NBC News reporting from Dasha Burns and Matt Dixon. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will announce he's running for president during this discussion with Twitter CEO Elon Musk. Musk and DeSantis will host an event on Twitter Spaces. On Wednesday at 7 p.m., moderated by David Sachs, a tech entrepreneur who is a Musk confidant and DeSantis supporter. That same evening, the campaign will launch a re- uh, release a launch video, and DeSantis will begin campaigning in early states after Memorial Day. Uh, sources expect also some event uh, with donors in Florida on Thursday. That's breaking news happening right now. We will get to that, but I got a guest on the phone. Um, if you are a longtime listener of this program, one of the subjects I've talked about is increasingly the war on adoption, which you don't notice it very much unless you know where to look. But in this country, the progressive far left and the far alt right are both at war with adoption agencies that believe in interracial adoption. Likewise, the far left is increasingly opposed to faith-based adoption agencies. And by the way, uh, there are a massive array of faith-based adoption agencies in this country that the left has tried to shut down, including very famously in Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court had to step in and and prevent them from literally shutting down Catholic charities. But some faith-based adoption agencies, including one of the largest in the world, have abandoned their faith platform to avoid picking fights with the left. So, for example, many like Catholic adoption agencies believe in adopting within two-parent heterosexual nuclear households. Uh, Pennsylvania tried to shut them down for that, claiming it discriminated against gay couples, and the Supreme Court stepped in and protected the Catholic adoption agencies. But uh, there are some Protestant adoption agencies that have abandoned their rule for two-parent heterosexual nuclear households because they don't want to pick a fight uh, with progressives. Uh, There are some faith-based adoption agencies that are still standing firm out there. One of those is Lifeline Children's Services. And I wanted to get on uh, Herbie Newell here. He's the president and executive director of Lifeline Children's Services. Uh, Used to be an accountant. Uh, Got into the adoption business, a faith-based business. uh, And they have chapters around the country. Herbie is joining me by phone from, I, I'm sad to admit, Alabama, but don't don't hold it against him. Just don't say anything about Nick Saban on the show, Herbie. 
Yeah, I'll try to. I'll try to resist. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen. Thanks for joining me, and, and I, I really specifically want to talk to you uh, about adoption because I I have a friend of mine who has adopted two children from China, and he has expressed to me his frustration with. Uh, the Chinese government now increasingly requiring, for example, videos of the kids to uh, he's sure they're building facial recognition. And if the adoption agencies don't go along with it, suddenly they can't adopt from China. At the same time, in this country, there are forces on the far left and the far right who want to prohibit interracial adoption. Bizarrely, uh, it just it, who knew adoption could be such a contentious subject? Yeah, and and not to mention that those on the far left who are pro-abortion are trying to also discredit adoption as a meaningful way to take care of a crisis or an unplanned pregnancy. And so it comes from every different way. And, you know, where I come from uh, with a, a grounding in God's Word, it really shouldn't come as a surprise because you see there's always been a war against the image bearers of God, and there's, there's always been a marginalization of children and of the most vulnerable. And so when these two groups are warring to really the protection of, of children, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't shock us, but it should definitely deepen sadden, deepenly sadden us. So, in the faith-based adoption space, I like I, I'm I'm very familiar with our our church here in Middle Georgia, is um, works with a local adoption center and uh, has helped fund it, and even they have had a, antagonistic people show up clearly with an agenda, not really interested in the kids, but adopting an agenda to try to harass the adoption agency. When it seems to me this should be about kids, not about your personal agenda. Yeah, I mean, what you really see is so many people have mis- misjudged uh, what adoption really looks like. Uh, they they rush to conclusions. I tell a lot of people, you know, when there's a, a story and a child who has either been in foster care or who has adopted, been adopted, the news is very likely to pick up to say, oh, well, this is the adopted child of... We don't put, though, the biological child. And so we really center in on the differences of how a child is entered into a family as opposed to celebrating the beautiful nature of reconciliation that adoption and foster care really is when we're saying we're looking outside of ourselves, our own interest, and we're coming to care for one that needs our help, that needs our support. I I just think there's a lot of times people don't know what to do with adoption because it, it does feel uh, it does feel foreign. It feels uh, it, it feels new. Um, there's the whole the whole debate about nature versus nurture, and I know a lot of people are are worried about the nature of a child they may be bringing into their home. What I always want to remind, especially believers, though, is to be reminded that while it's not perfect. Physical adoption is a picture of the reality of the gospel that we see in in Romans and in Ephesians and in Galatians, where our sin nature is brought into the family of God for God's grace to reconcile and redeem us. And so that same war that we see spiritually, yeah, it happens in physical adoption. And I don't think sometimes we know how to deal with it, but through God's grace and through intervention and through just different practices, we can help these children be able to thrive and survive and ultimately to flourish as an image bearer of God. What what is what are the challenges that Lifeline faces, and, and I don't necessarily mean uh, the political or the culture war stuff, but uh, how do we y'all are out there trying to work with families and also 
work with with children who need placement. What are the struggles that you find you most encounter? Yeah, well, you know, I think what we're starting to see in our culture is just the degradation of the nuclear family. And that degradation of not having a mom and a dad that's present, that's active, that's committed to one another and committed to their children leaves children in very vulnerable places. And we see a lot of children, especially in the foster care system, where they are going from one one home to another home. Uh, they, they don't have any type of stability. They don't have any type of firm foundation. And because of that, they're bringing in trauma. They're bringing in pain. They're, they're, they're looking to control their situation, which makes it very difficult for families to thrive and survive. Uh, what we're starting to see even now is with the substance abuse that's happening in our country with both alcohol, legal substance abuse, alcohol, um, you know, nicotine, but also illegal substance abuse, we're seeing a lot more impact on children in the womb. You know, we're also seeing more trauma that's impacting children in the womb. And so as pro-life Americans who believe that life begins at conception, it shouldn't surprise us that we have more and more children that are, are being born and are having uh, terrible reactions to the substances that their moms have consumed, but also to the trauma that their moms have experienced. And so there was this misnomer that if you adopted a child at birth, that you would have no issues with that child. And we're starting to see issues because of the choices that a mom has made and the conditions that she's been in uh, in her pregnancy. Now, you know, I I have heard from friends of mine that the, the substance abuse issue is more and more a, a problem, particularly as uh, recreational marijuana spreads around the country legally and it, that it, it's having direct impacts. And of course, the rise in schizophrenia of kids and things like that, uh, the, the overall health situation with kids. And it, it seems to also tie into there. there is a feeling, and I think the data now shows it from depression and the like, that there's almost a collapse happening in the country of, I mean, people falling into despair. And you do, on the other side, just have this belief out there that uh, a woman should not have to carry a child to term and uh, we, we should make it harder and harder to adopt. Even at a regulatory state, it seems like it, it is in some ways cost prohibitive uh, just through regulation to be able to adopt these days. Yeah, and I think cost is a big thing, especially when you look at international adoption. You know, we've regulated international adoption from a federal level to a point where it was supposed to be regulated for the protection of children and family, and really all it's done is drive the cost up. It's regulation upon regulation. You know, a lot of people kind of blush when I say this, but it's kind of like the EPA. Uh, the EPA's advisements against businesses are not hurting the ones that are clean, or they're not hurting the polluters, they're hurting the ones that are, that are trying to take care of the environment, because they're bearing the brunt of the cost of all the regulation. It's the same thing that's happening with international adoption. But then also what we're seeing is actually well-meaning people will go into their state systems and they'll try to adjust the adoption law to quote-unquote make it easier for families to adopt. But really what they're doing is they're bringing bad players into the system. They're introducing all types of situations that actually drive up the cost. And so, you know, when, when Vice President Pence was, was quoted about a month ago saying it's insane that a domestic adoption costs about $70,000, he's not wrong in a sense when you're talking about uh, 
certain providers who aren't regulated, who aren't uh, licensed by their government, or you're talking about private placements. But when you look at organizations like ours that are duly licensed by the government, we have checks and balances that we have to go through. Our fees uh, are much, much lower than that. Our average fees are much more like 20 to 22, and that's still too high. But with all the regulation, all the things that go into it of a legal process, it drives that cost up, and it, it can make it cost prohibitive for more and more families to get engaged and get involved. Involved. And so some of that is even by trying to lessen some of the, the, the good restrictions. And so we have the far right trying to lessen some of the good safety restrictions, and we have the far left that are trying to overregulate it to the point where it becomes cost prohibitive. And both make that cost go way up. Gosh. Uh, so if, if someone wanted to explore adoption uh, and reach out to you guys, I mean, where do they begin the process? Yeah, and I'm going to break a promise that I made at the very beginning just for, for, for humor. Actually, <laughs> Nick Saban adopted. Both of his kids are adopted. Just want to throw that in. I'll, all and right. So, I'll, I'll allow it. Know, outside of just football, you can follow the coach um, and, and learn how to adopt. Uh, you know, one of the things that I would definitely direct them to is the National Council for Adoption. It's a it's a large website that that uh, is a is a great place that a lot of organizations go through. The Christian Alliance for Orphan is another great place. CAFO.org for people to look, and then people can always go straight to our website, LifelineChild.org. And even if we couldn't help them, or there's a specific thing that they're looking for, we can lead them to the right place. Uh, Catholic Social Services within every state as well is a great place to start. So those are four great resources for someone who says, I just want the first steps. I want to know what's involved. I want to look at adoption. And we need more families right now, especially in a post-road world, that are willing to step up to say, hey, we will be a home, but we'll also be a place that's going to love and care for these women who are making these incredible choices. Now, last last question for you. If folks wanted to help what you guys do and, and help your ministry, what should they do? You know, I think it's simple. First, we would ask anyone who is a believer to pray, to pray. Uh, you know, children are in dark places. The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. We need prayers for wisdom. We need prayers for fortitude. And obviously, we need prayers that the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills will supply for this ministry. Over 60% of our uh, budget is from private donations. And so you can give. You can always give to what we're doing to be able to help in the foster care realm, the adoption realm, and caring for orphan and vulnerable children. And then I'd say third is just get involved. Um, get involved in a small way, but be open to how that small way may open up into a big way to make true life impact uh, in the life of a children. And then the last thing I would just tell everyone, take notice of those around you. A lot of times when we want to talk about caring for the vulnerable, we want to look at another zip code. We want to look at another country. Look at your neighborhood. Sometimes there's help that you can provide even on your very own street. Amen to that. And folks, if you want to donate to Lifeline Children's Services and help them advance the cause of adoption, just text the word DONATE to 33777. I'll send you back a link to their uh, giving portal. And Herbie, thanks so much for stopping by and talking about this issue. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. And I'll join you anytime. Absolutely. Thank you. Herbie Newell, Lifeline Children's Services, uh, largest faith-based adoption uh, group in the nation. Uh, used to be Bethany, but Bethany decided to drop the faith component because uh, they got tired of fighting the wokes, it sounds like. I, I Something like that. I just it was disappointed in them. But Lifeline Children's Services, they, they work around the world. You can help them by texting the word DONATE to 33777.
Now, when we come back, we'll get to the breaking news about DeSantis. Hi, welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. Ron DeSantis will announce his presidential bid with Elon Musk tomorrow night at 6 p.m. on Twitter. Uh, working on, I texted some folks trying to get some info. I'll get it for y'all, but I want to go on and get to Andrew right now. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, hi, I'm a longtime listener, and if you ask my wife, I'm an unhinged man that likes to shout at his radio when you say things I disagree with. <laughs> welcome. So, man, I, I got to tell you, wife of mine, that you, you've done a very good job disguising your voice. <laughs> yell at me on the radio, yell at me at home. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, so commenting on what you said about um, how could Trump theoretically win based on the assumption that the 2020 election was stolen, Mm -hmm. which I'm not wholly convinced of. So to me, if Donald Trump were to run again, the only way for him to get the election to stop the election from being stolen again would be for him to get more votes then the fraud can reasonably counter. If Mm -hmm. the voter margins are too heavily in Trump's favor, the fraud would become too obvious to ignore or excuse as mere anomalies. Now, this would not solely be on Trump if we are to assume that there is a wide-reaching Democrat fraud machine, then DeSantis or any Republican would have to do the same thing. Yes, as we used to say when I was in political campaigns, uh, if it ain't close, they can't cheat. Yeah, pretty much. That's that's my best attempt at a yeah. yeah look, I, I I agree with you a hundred percent. So don't don't yell at me because because I actually agree with you on this one. And, and you know so and I guess the problem goes is in a closely divided country, how do you grow those margins um, this time around? I think a recession helps any Republican, including Donald Trump. Um, with 90 to 5 percent, I have never understood polling, and I realize it's like the margin of error saying 5 percent. I have no idea who this guy is. 95 to 99 percent people know him. Uh, How do you persuade them to vote for him against Biden? There's a plausible argument that because you went to Biden for normalcy and you didn't get it, you go back to Trump, who you may not have liked his tweets, but you loved his economy. that's, That's a plausible path forward. They've got to make those arguments. So they, they really do have to make those arguments. Uh, my concern is uh, when you look at all the photo, focus groups, forget the, forget the polls, the focus groups of uh, swing voters in states. They don't like Biden. They don't like Trump. They really like someone new. Uh, you have an easier shot at it without spending as much money as you need to spend. Uh, but Andrew, to your point, yeah, it, it, overwhelming dominance at the polls matters. So you got to do early voting. you got to do ballot harvesting. You've got to boost those numbers. You can't wait for the election day. And if the Trump team gets that message, figures it out, yeah, I I definitely think they could. I I won't rule out the idea of him winning. I do think it would be easier for someone else to win than Trump because so many people already know him and you got to persuade people who don't like him to go vote for him when the status quo is oftentimes easier than rocking the boat. People want a normalcy with Biden. Do they really want to go back to Trump? Greetings across the fruited plain of America. It's Eric Erickson here. I hope y'all are hanging in there today. There is breaking news, as I have mentioned, uh, NBC News and now Fox News and now CNN all reporting Ron DeSantis intends to announce his campaign tomorrow night on a Twitter uh, audio stream. I think they call it Twitter Circles or some such. 
at 6 p.m. with uh, Elon Musk. Here is, just so you have it, not just for me, here's how the press is covering it. All right, big fanfare here now. This is a Fox News alert, and Fox News has confirmed that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will announce his candidacy for president tomorrow. Let's bring in Brett Baer, anchor and executive editor of Special Report. Brett, we hear that the announcement is going to take place 6 p.m. tomorrow night in a Twitter space conversation that Ron DeSantis will have with Elon Musk. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't get much bigger yeah, than that. That's one way to do it. Yeah. That's right. John Gillian, good afternoon. I think uh, we obviously all saw this coming and it was uh, going to happen, forecast to be this week. And now we have the specifics of how it's going to happen tomorrow, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Governor Ron DeSantis will officially become a candidate uh, for the presidency in 2024. The in- Twitter spaces with Elon Musk. Uh, now, he's doing a big donor event in Florida, in Miami. There is speculation, by the way, NBC reported it was at 7 p.m. Fox News reports it's at 6 p.m., moderated by David Sachs, a tech entrepreneur who is a DeSantis supporter and an Elon Musk confidant. Uh, There is a big event at the Four Seasons Hotel in Miami, and I am being told that we should expect uh, more beyond a Twitter space. So what I am led to believe, and I, I, I don't have a lot of inside sources talking. They're, they're all qu- kind of quiet. But uh, talking to people who I trust to be familiar with the inner operations, what I am led to believe is that they're going to do a fully formed campaign approach. Um, and that's going to, to shake things up. It's going to be a little bit different from what people might have expected. So, let me. In fact, uh, I'm going to I'm going to cause some work here for Philip and push him to uh, push out a, a an unexpected video here, so that if you subscribe, you can get it as well. I am led to believe that uh, beyond any sort of Twitter spaces conversation with Elon Musk, what we're going to see from the DeSantis campaign is not a nascent campaign, but a fully formed campaign. And what I mean by that is from what I am told, and again, I don't have immediate people in the DeSantis campaign talking to me, but those who talk to those people, those in the know, uh, those in the periphery, uh, those who are plugged into that space, uh, the DeSantis it keeps everybody kind of at arm's length, although the the the, the arms are, are the length is shortening as they bring more people in to talk. But it does appear that what I am being told is playing out, that it's going to be a fully formed campaign. So a lot of times campaigns come out and they announce they're coming out and then they start stretching their legs over time. They do more and more events. They, they do more and more messaging. They start the fundraising. They do some announcements. What I'm told is the DeSantis team – In addition to the delay of the Florida legislature, they've been putting together all the pieces. So when they come out, the campaign is fully formed. They've got a massive pile of state-level endorsements. They've got congressional endorsements. They have a massive war chest. They have their messaging ready to go. They have their full logo ready to go. They have everything that a campaign has out of the gate looking fully formed. In fact, I'm already told, and the math works out for this to be true, that the 
fundraising apparatus for DeSantis coming in out of the gate will be larger than what Donald Trump has amassed since he announced on November 22nd. That's really a big deal, if true. When you look at the numbers from the DeSantis war chest of what he has, and if he gets transferred to the Never Back Down Pack, it is uh, unquestionably going to outpace Donald Trump's fundraising. Now, the big issue is the DeSantis donors to his immediate war chest. Once DeSantis announces there's a big firewall, as I've mentioned, between him and the Never Back Down Super PAC, we know that's going to be his super PAC because DeSantis has started using the phrase regularly, never back down. It's a phrase he's used in the past. It's connected to him, but using it more just as the super PAC has come out. He's got uh, people who are loyal to him now there at that super PAC. So the firewall comes up, money gets transferred to the super PAC. They can no longer coordinate. They cannot talk to each other. But the Super PAC can run the ground game for DeSantis and an ad campaign for DeSantis. You have a combined message. You have the DeSantis look, the DeSantis logo. I will note that in West Columbia, South Carolina, the Never Back Down PAC has paid a couple thousand dollars for campaign signage this week. The report came out. That news has broken in the last 24 hours, which suggests there will be a public event. If you're doing a bunch of signs and campaign paraphernalia that suggests there's going to be something more than a Twitter space. So a lot of people are looking online saying, this is ridiculous. How online? Remember Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris both were too invested in online conversations. They cared so deeply about what Twitter was saying. They cared so deeply about what progressives were saying on Twitter. It ruined their campaigns. I don't think that the DeSantis campaign is going to have that problem. I don't think they're going to be so invested in the online spaces. They're starting there. They'll get some buzz there. They'll earn some goodwill with Elon Musk. They'll be using a novel space. But if they're printing, you you don't hold up signs on Twitter spaces. So if you're paying thousands of dollars for campaign signage, that suggests there's also going to be a live event somewhere. He's got an event in Florida with these donors. It suggests they're going to put something together. Uh, I am led to believe from people on the outside that you will see a lot of his key surrogates, a lot of his endorsers, a lot of the donors and others at a live event this week uh, in Florida. That makes sense, and you continue then to get this momentum. If you come out fully formed, so you have a big donor list, you have a big endorsement list, you have a massive war chest, you have your logo ready to go, you have your your um, you've got your money, you've got your messaging, you've got your ad campaign style. You suddenly now have a ground game, and you're going to advertise. Surprise! We've hired these people in Iowa, and they're prominent people. We've hired these people in New Hampshire, they're prominent. We've hired these people in South Carolina. Those are the first three states. Suddenly your campaign takes on a level of momentum that the other campaigns don't. I am told that this great pause, this great delay had a lot to do with that. It also had the benefit they think, whether you or I agree with them, they think had the benefit of settling some of the expectations. So the expectations for DeSantis six months ago were really, really high. And he never announced, and he never announced, and he never announced. He got attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked, and the polling kind of went down. Donald Trump had the indictment. It, it the, the indictment from the, the New York DA really helped him. The Gene Carroll stuff actually helped him with people. He's suddenly at about 50 to 52% support. DeSantis is clearly number two. You add up DeSantis and all the others, they get close, but Trump is over 50%. Some of that is, is fungible, depending on the polls. But 
his expectations really did go down. And now you've actually got the point where you've got some people like Matt Lewis, for example, at the Daily Beast, who I know and friends with, is like DeSantis, maybe you shouldn't run. Other people are like his his campaign has been aborted. His campaign has been smothered in the crib. He, it, it, this is a joke. He's not doing well. So the expectations are lowered. People were expecting DeSantis to be up here, very high expectations. They're now very low expectations. So he comes in with the fully formed campaign. He's got a massive war chest. He's got a great look in his ads. He's got a great message. He's talking the economy. He's talking jobs. He's talking the success of Florida. He's talking, we want to make America Florida. We want to do economically. We want to lower crime. He comes out with a huge array of surrogates. He comes out with a campaign team in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Suddenly, he's surpassing the now lowered expectations. That will help him. The question is, is it true? So many people don't know. There's a lot of speculation. There are a lot of people who claim to be in the know. There are a lot of people who who their sources tell them that I'm, I'm in that boat. Sources say we don't know whether it's true. I just have the sneaking suspicion that DeSantis is not just going to launch in a Twitter space. You don't buy thousands of dollars of campaign signs and have it done in West Columbia, South Carolina, and then have it mailed off to Florida if you're just going to do a Twitter space. You you don't do that. You don't get these big endorsements in Iowa and New Hampshire unless you're also then going to come out pretty quickly and say, hey, now look at my ground game team. Donald Trump has hired Jeb Bush's coordinator for New Hampshire. Who is DeSantis going to announce he's got? What about South Carolina? You're, you're doing printing in South Carolina. What's your ground game in South Carolina? You've got Haley and Scott there. Trump is going to make a big play. He's got the governor's support. What do you do to stand out there? What about these early states? Who do you have lined up? I suspect all of that's going to come flooding out. If it doesn't come flooding out after this delay, I think it brings in a new wave of headlines suggesting uh, why he took this delay. Why wasn't all of this stuff there? So behind the scenes, if it's true that he comes out with a fully formed campaign, it makes him look like the legit contender against Trump. And it is also why I think these stories have come out in the last 48 hours that the Biden team themselves are suddenly starting to think that DeSantis could go all the way. I don't know that he can. There are some really good people. We haven't even heard from Mike Pence yet. Mike Pence is going to get in. Tim Scott's just gotten in. Nikki Haley's in. Vivek Ramaswamy is in. Chris Christie's making up his mind. Chris Sununu is making up his mind. Uh, there's another uh, Glenn Youngkin. Glenn Youngkin supposedly now making up his mind. Maybe he's going to get in. DeSantis has the potential to freeze the field. His delays encourage people to get into the race early. Let's see where he goes from here. But according to NBC and Fox News, it all begins tomorrow night on Twitter in a Twitter space with Elon Musk. Where does it go from online to offline? And what happens after that? That's one of the issues we're going to have to see moving forward. Now, I got to tell you about Advantage Gold before we move anywhere else or take any more phone calls. With the topsy-turvy market the way it is right now, if you are at all interested in using precious metals to Balance out even the ebbs and flows of the market. You should call Advantage Gold at 800-450-2566. You got the inflation situation. By the way, I don't know if you heard this, but um, a lot of the Fed governors are suggesting they're still going to keep raising interest rates this year, probably two more times. You got the market ups and downs. You got the major geopolitical turmoil. You don't have to sit by hopelessly and watch it all unfold. 
You can put precious metals like gold and silver in your portfolio by calling Advantage Gold, 800-450-2566. They're TrustLink's number one highest rated gold company seven years in a row. They've got fantastic prices and staff. They're highly educational. They can help teach you and help you comply with the IRS rules relating to precious metals. And they'll give you the free gold IRA IRA investment kit. All you got to do is call them, 800-450-2566. Call them today. They can answer any of your questions. They don't do it with gimmicks. They don't put the hard sell on. They just think if they play it straight with you, you'll have confidence in them. So call Advantage Gold today, 800-450-2566. Howdy. I uh, got an email from listener Chris up in Virginia and asking if if it comes out fully formed, the DeSantis campaign, will he have a, a running mate announcement? I don't believe that's the case in large part because uh, the way those work, you're you're running for the nomination. So you don't want to commit to a running mate as well. You're not actually the nominee yet. So I, I think there will not be a running mate announced. I, I have a hard time believing they would do that. In fact, I suspect one of the current presidential candidates probably would be the running mate. All right. So now, uh, gotta I, I I gotta play you this audio at the end. I meant to give this earlier, but we've had the breaking news and the interviews. Have y'all heard the governor of North Carolina, Roy Cooper? He has declared a state of emergency in the state of North Carolina. There are no hurricanes coming. There's no virus coming. What's coming to North Carolina that has caused a gubernatorial declaration of a state of emergency? School choice. I'm declaring this state of emergency because you need to know what's happening. If you care about public schools in North Carolina, it's time to take immediate action and tell them to stop the damage that will set back our schools for a generation. Here's what's happening in the next few weeks. Their private school voucher scheme will pour your tax money into private schools. They'll pour your money into private schools. It's a state of emergency because y'all need to know what's happening. All shucks, they're going to override my veto and give school choice to black children who might come to my kids' private school. That's essentially Roy Cooper's concern. His kids went to private school. He paid for private school. He does not want black children to go to his children's private school. That is the overwhelming concern of Democrats everywhere. They don't want to give escape to black families who can't escape failing public schools. He's declaring a state of emergency, not for a hurricane, not for a virus, not for a riot. But because black children might be able to get into a white private school. That's Roy Cooper's state of emergency. Democrats, you are not calling him racist for that? Really? You you don't think it's racist of Roy Cooper to declare a state of emergency for this? No, no. You actually support this. You support Roy Cooper's state of emergency because you Democrats don't actually want black children to be able to escape public schools. The Republicans in North Carolina have done it. They've joined the Republicans in Florida, in Texas, in Oklahoma, in Ohio, in Iowa. Uh, I, I, in my state legislature in Georgia isn't doing it. Uh, the It is rural Republicans in the state of Georgia that are blocking it. I personally believe that they should bring this up for a vote the moment the legislature comes back. 
and vote on it and not give a single thing to the rural Georgia if those Republicans won't vote for it. So the what I'm told in Georgia, the reason it failed is Republicans in the state legislature in the suburbs agreed to increase the weight limit of trucks on rural highways, something rural Republicans wanted. And rural Republicans agreed to vote for school choice. So the suburban and urban Republicans voted to increase the weight limits, and then the rural Republicans stabbed them in the back and voted against school choice. So I have been urging, and I've heard it is very likely, that they will put school choice up for a vote very early in the next legislative session in Georgia. And if the rural Republicans vote against it, uh, then the urban-suburban Republicans will give them absolutely nothing the entire legislative session, which is deserved considering the betrayal that happened. Now the North Carolina Republicans have stood firm. The North Carolina Republicans have voted for school choice. The governor in North Carolina declaring a state of emergency over the audacious plan of Republicans to allow black children to go to private schools like the governor sent his kid to. When Democrats talk about systemic racism, it's projection, isn't it? They talk about racism in America, yet they won't allow the black children to escape the systemically racist government-run schools. I mean, they say the government is systemically racist, and yet they won't allow black children to escape those schools with government funds. They, they won't do it. They're propping up the systemically racist system. That's what this is about. Not every child will be able to escape a public school system. But shouldn't we allow those who can to escape? Shouldn't we allow it? They say it'll take money away from the other kids, but will it really? Because if a black child is able to escape anyway, that money's gone. So let them take the money. Let them get a good education. Improve the workforce of your state. Florida is living proof that it works, and they just expanded their system. It is to the ever-living shame of Republicans in places like Texas and Georgia that are dragging their feet on this issue that they have not improved the lives of their children in their states. It's time to stand up and fight for school choice. The North Carolina Republicans should be commended, and Roy Cooper should be laughed out of the state for thinking it's worth a state of emergency that black children in North Carolina will be able to get a good education now.